This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, reopening for business. Starbucks visionary Howard Schultz on the responsibility to keep small businesses running. It would be immoral to let these companies and these people fail. Connecticut's Governor Ned Lamont on business in his state and the outlook for its school children. I've got a May 20th date as a decision note. Former FDA head Scott Gottlieb warns that the timeline to reopen businesses is tricky. Gyms, nail salons, bowling alleys, tattoo parlors. I mean, it feels like they collected a, you know, a list of the businesses that were most risky and decided to open those first. And what's less than zero? The price of oil. I think mm-hmm. peak oil might have been uh, maybe not a real thing. <laughs> it's Tuesday, April 21st, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up today on the podcast, an historic price move that you wouldn't think was possible. U.S. oil futures plunged below zero for the first time yesterday, reflecting the lack of capacity to store all of the oil that isn't being used because of the coronavirus pandemic. The price of a barrel of West Texas Intermediate crude for May delivery closed at about $18 on Friday. That's low. Remember oil's price high of more than $100 a barrel back in 2008. You might have felt it at the gas station. The price on that same contract, a barrel of oil delivered in May, so soon, plunged to negative $37.63 at yesterday's close. Less than zero. That would mean sellers must pay buyers to take barrels off their hands. And then what would a buyer even do with the oil? No one's flying. Fewer driving. The cruise ships certainly aren't going anywhere. And for how many more months will that be the case? Uh, Joe, oil prices yesterday, never seen anything like it. In fact, nobody's ever seen anything like this. No. Uh, in fact, it's a lead store, top of the journal, went to minus $37.63 uh, a barrel. First time ever uh, below zero. No place to put it. People would like to store it, try to sell it for, uh, for more. But uh, most people are watching. June switched over uh, to that yesterday. June's not much better. Uh, obviously, uh, today. No, I was shocked at how, how much pressure that's under, too. Yeah. Wow, that's a big gain, though, today in May, up 80%. <laughs> it's strange things happen. Not everybody takes delivery, and there's a lot of speculators. The people that, that lost, I think, a lot of them aren't necessarily the people that were planning on taking delivery, but speculators, people that uh, hedge, things like that. And, and it's reflecting the, the lack of capacity. I can tell you one thing, Becky. Um, I think mm-hmm. peak oil might have been... Uh, Maybe not a real thing <laughs> yeah. going back They didn't see years. this coming. Yeah, I don't think so. Anyway. Yeah. I'm trying we are to... washing oil. These things aren't supposed to go negative. The curve in oil futures markets, uh, the May contract gaining ground, now less negative uh, than yesterday. So there is, uh, there, June is 1687 is not much better. That may be more, you know, the 37 I can deal with because it's technical and it's crazy, but 16 on June is... Yeah, it's just the well, supply demand look, you gotta dynamics. You got to start thinking. Out of whack. Yeah, yeah, you got to start thinking that at, at this point, traders who are in that contract start thinking, wait a second, this is like hot potato. I don't want to get caught with this at the end of the contract either. You look a little further out, and it's slightly more optimistic for the months after that, where it's still above twenty twenty-two dollars a barrel. But you know, when you start thinking, watching what just happened and how that played out yesterday. Anybody who was uh, holding that paper thinking that they were going to be able to trade the paper before the June contract came due, too, that, that puts an awful lot of pressure on you. You don't want to get caught with the hot potato at the end no. of the month. There are now nearly 788,000 confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States with more than 42,000 deaths. Joining us now, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's also a CNBC contributor and serves on the board 
of Pfizer and Illumina. It's very careful, very measured, never really goes out on a limb, and I'm going to try and change that right now. Give me your gut feeling on what the... Uh, your, how do you know? How do you know where I'm going? You don't even know what I'm going to say, Scott. Come on. Just be open to this. You just heard how many cases that we're talking about. In, in the real world, what do you think the number of cases in this country really are, given what we've seen with some of these anecdotal studies? Is it... Would you be surprised if it was 10 times as many? Would you be surprised if it was 50 times as many? Yeah, it probably is 10 times as many. We're probably diagnosing 1 in 10 to 1 in 20 infections, and that's what some of the reliable analyses are now showing. Um, the studies out of California, both the Santa Clara study and the one that was announced yesterday out of USC, they're using a test for antibodies, what people produce when they are exposed to the virus, where they're claiming that the specificity, the ability to actually detect antibodies reliably, is higher than any test on the market. They're saying it's 99.5% accurate. Most of the other tests that FDA's reviewed are 95% accurate. That doesn't sound like a big difference, but when you're dealing with a test that's probing for a low probability event, and that low probability event being having been exposed to coronavirus, because not that many have been exposed, small differences in the specificity of the test have a big difference on um, the reliability of the test. And so I think you need to put those particular evaluations in perspective. They might be pretty off. Um, but most of the evaluations we have now, whether it's from Seattle or from Europe or the ones out of New York, suggest that anywhere from 1% to 5% of people in hotspots have been exposed to this virus. And so if you apply that to New York, you know, might, it might be that upwards of a million people have been exposed to this now in New York City, in, in the metro New York um, area inside, inside New York City. And so that, that puts... Uh, you know, that puts us at a case fatality rate of around 1%, perhaps a little less, what, we, what we've been figuring all along. But there's certainly undiagnosis, uh, underdiagnosis going on. Hey, doc, Dr. Gottlieb, the administration is now discussing with business leaders this idea that they should be indemnified, uh, have liability, uh, not have liability for anything that happens once they reopen their business, either for employees, employees or for customers. And I can certainly understand businesses saying we can't be held liable for this, for everything that happens. But at the same time, if you indemnify them from all of that, doesn't that potentially uh, give them carte blanche to, to not take things as seriously, to not make sure that they are offering as many protections as they should? How do you balance those two sides? Yeah, it's not clear to me what risk you're trying to mitigate here, because we have risk of infectious disease already in society, and businesses aren't necessarily held liable for outbreaks that occur um, when people come in and are undiagnosed and pass on an infection. You have outbreaks of measles. You have outbreaks of flu, certainly. Um, you know, you have outbreaks of chickenpox. You have outbreaks of multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. And these happen uh, in closed settings. They happen in amusement parks. They happen in theaters. And they're traced back to those, those locations. And we don't have liability being assessed, uh, you know, all over the economy for those outbreaks. I'm not sure why this would be treated any different from a, product, from a liability standpoint or from an indemnification standpoint. I'm not sure how we would do that. Doctor, um, what does... What do you need for herd immunity? What's, what's the minimum? You need, you need 50, you think? Well, it depends on the transmissibility of the virus. And so if we say that the R0, meaning the number of new cases you get for each individual case is two, then you would need 50% of people to be infected. For if we say the R0 is three, meaning you get three new cases for every one case that gets um, diagnosed, then the R0 would need to be around 66% 
Um, and it looks like the R, then, the, uh, then you'd need herd immunity. To get herd immunity, you'd need 66% infected. It looks like the r naught's probably a little bit higher than what we first anticipated. So, you know, probably the case fatality rate's going to be a little less than one, and there was some speculation to be around 1%, but the transmissibility of this is going to be a little higher. So it might be above three. Some of the modeling shows that it could be above three. This seems to be a highly contagious virus with a lot of asymptomatic spread. The series on uh, the amount of asymptomatic spread, you guys, anywhere from 20 to 40 percent, the reliable studies. Scott, when is, when is the remdesivir, the, the broader study, when, when is that expected? I'm just wondering, we saw the, the, the beginnings of, of some coming out. When, when is that due? Just, just wondering for us to keep an eye on it. So there's three studies that, are, that we're watching. One is uh, in 400 patients with mild and moderate disease. That should read out, you know, within weeks or a week. Um, there's a larger study that was originally 600 patients. It's been upsized of severe patients. That's going to read out. It's going to take a little longer for that to read out, but there might be some interim data coming out of that before the study is fully enrolled. And then there's the study that everyone's watching by NIH, by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. That's a randomized placebo-controlled study. That should read out towards the end of May. Um, and so that's the study that people are looking towards for a definitive answer. But the 400-patient um, mild-moderate study should read out much sooner, and that's going to give us a pretty good indication of whether or not the drug's having a treatment effect. Um, hey, uh, doctor, real quick, uh, Georgia, as you know, is uh, going to be reopening, or at least partially reopening on Monday, including gyms. Um, given the numbers there, is this advisable? Well, gyms, nail salons, bowling alleys, um, hair salons, uh, tattoo parlors, um, it feels like they collected a, uh, you know, a list of the businesses that you know, were most risky and decided to open those first. I, I, I think that we should focus on trying to bring people back to work in factories, commercial settings, offices first, and open some of those um, businesses that are providing services, providing you know, discretionary services secondary. Notwithstanding, second, notwithstanding the fact that I understand there's a lot of small businesses behind these professions that are being badly hurt. Um, but you want to get the economy going. You want to bring back the businesses that contribute more to GDP first, if you can. Okay. Uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, always great to see you. Next on Squawk Pod, Connecticut's governor considers how he'll reopen his state post-COVID-19. I want to do it cautiously. I don't want to have another big outbreak, uh, likes of what you see in India and Singapore and other places. That would just be a body blow to the economy. And later, former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz on just how important that decision is for the millions of independent businesses across the country. You know all too well the line too big to fail. These businesses are too small to fail. We'll be right back. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Now reopening the U.S. economy state by state. The governor of Georgia has started the process there, but has not changed the deadline of April 30th for the current shelter-in-place order. Governor Brian Kemp said Georgia had more than 18,000 cases of coronavirus and just over 700 deaths. He says he's reopening certain businesses because data is trending in the right direction. We should note the move comes after a week in which total U.S. pandemic deaths hit more than 42,000. This is Governor Kemp speaking at a press conference yesterday. Given the favorable data, enhanced testing, and approval of our health care professionals, we will allow gyms, fitness centers, bowling alleys, body art studios, barbers, cosmetologists, hair designers, nail care artists, estheticians, their respective schools, and massage therapists to reopen their doors this Friday, April the 24th. 
Kemp says movie theaters, private social clubs, and restaurant dine-in service could reopen on April 27th, Monday, under social distancing and sanitation mandates. And just as a reminder, there is still no vaccine or proven therapy to treat COVID-19. Meanwhile, seven states in the northeastern part of the U.S. are coordinating closely to try to reopen their economies together. They include the epicenter of New York, as well as New Jersey, Rhode Island, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. For more on this plan, Becky Quick spoke with the governor of Connecticut, Ned Lamont. Here's Becky. First of all, give us an update. How, how are things going in Connecticut? And how, how's your constituency going? What, what kind of numbers are you seeing at this point? Where do you think <clears throat> we are in the curve? So Fairfield County, uh, southern Connecticut, was really part of that whole New York City uh, regional pandemic. They got hit first. Hospitalizations are down. So that's a big plus. But the virus is moving right up the Metro North I-95 corridor uh, and uh, hitting Hartford, Connecticut now pretty hard. So there's uh, still going to be some flare ups, I think, over the course of the next uh, couple few weeks. We, we know that you are working with other governors in the region and, 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 and realize why that's important. You don't want to open in one area and just have uh, residents in a place that doesn't open come to that place and, and potentially spread disease there. But where, where do things stand right now? What, where are you in these talks about when we can start to see things reopening? Uh, I've got a May 20th date as a decision note. I've told uh, schools we're not going to reopen before uh, May 20th. I told, generally speaking, our businesses don't expect any big changes before May 20th. Between now and May 20th, we're going to do a lot more testing, and we'll actually have more of the surgical masks we need that are so key for manufacturing and stores and retail to get them going again. What has to happen between now and then for, for you to say, okay, May 20th is the day we start to open, and, and what does that look like? What opens first? Well, the presidential guidelines, I think, were pretty responsible. They said... Um, you know, 14 days and then 28 days of declining infections, declining hospitalizations. That gives you a yellow light to caution, you know, cautiously start opening things up. Uh, and, and again, like I said, if we have more surgical masks, that allows us to allow those smaller businesses to get going uh, more safely. Uh, my instinct is that we're going to first focus on our big manufacturing and outside construction, something that Connecticut never closed down, by the way. But make sure they can do that safely and continue to expand there. Then we'll look at uh, the retail. Right now, the retail can do everything on a takeout basis. We never stop that, but look cautiously at opening them up on a limited basis. What, what comes later? What things will still remain shuttered as far as you're concerned? I think the things that come later are the things that Georgia opened up first, which surprised me. Those things that have very close personal contact, you know, uh, bars, uh, restaurants where you're closed in. Uh, probably even a barber shops, uh, nail salons, places where you have close personal contact. You know, there I think we're going to have to wait till we have a little more testing and uh, more masks. Governor, what kind of economic damage has been done to your state at this point? Where, where are you seeing the most pain and what kind of help are you seeking from the federal government? Uh, obviously, small business, uh, Main Street business, uh, small retail, restaurant, bars. They've been devastated. Obviously, their revenues disappeared. And I think the CARE Act did pretty good by small business. Uh, we need to true that up. They need more money. Connecticut got about 18,000 loans to small businesses. So uh, maybe that was 30, 40 percent of our total workforce. So that was a start. But we still have left an awful lot of people behind. And that ramps up your unemployment. What will you do if it, it looks like there's a second outbreak once things start to reopen? How closely will you be measuring? Where will you be measuring? 
And what would make you think, wait a second, this this is too much too soon? Because we know there will be potential outbreaks in yeah. places as we start to open up. It's inevitable. I think it's inevitable, but uh, I want to do it cautiously. I don't want to have another big outbreak uh, like so what you see in India and Singapore and other places. That would just be a body blow to the economy. So let's keep stay if we can keep on a steady track as uh, best we can. Look, I've got... Um, smart thermometers out there right now. You take your temperature, Bluetooth to your phone, up to the cloud, so we can track um, you know, fevers on a regional basis and see what's going on. How we feel, that's a site we've got where we've got thousands of people uh, logging onto that, to that app, so we can have them test their symptoms. So we have thousands of people there will be able to track things early on, so we don't just have to wait for the PCR testing, which we are gonna ramp up as well. You said schools are closed through May 20th. You didn't mention that, though, in the things that first open up. What, what do you anticipate with the rest of the school season? Is, is that something you, you think will happen, that kids will go back to school this school year? I, I can't speak to that, uh, but um, we're going to have a lot more information, so we'll be able to speak to that before May 20th. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, places are considering opening up schools, at least on a voluntary basis for the younger grades. Uh, you can do that on a regional basis where you can't really do bars and restaurants on a regional basis, because all that means is everybody will drive to that one bar that's open. That's no good. Yeah, I guess my question is, where does it fall? Is that one of the first things to go back, the school, or one of the last? And, and it, it does relate pretty closely to people being able to go back to work. If, if, the ki if the schools are closed, it's difficult for working parents with children to be able to go back to work. Yeah, I would do schools very cautiously. Um, the guidelines coming out of the Pence Commission said you need 28 days of declining metrics. Maybe then and only then do you even consider uh, opening up schools on a limited basis. And, and Governor, I, I realize you're working with all these other governors in the region very closely, but there must be times where there's maybe some tension that comes up between you all, too, because you each have your own concerns. I remember a few weeks back when the governor of Rhode Island was using National Guard to kind of track down anybody who came into her state with New York plates because she was worried about the spread of the virus there. Where, where are the areas you work best together and where have there been some areas where maybe there's a little friction? Well, you described one where maybe there was a little bit of friction. Um, I think we work best right <laughs> now. We got a regional consortium and I'm talking to all the New England governors uh, in, a, in a few hours, sharing data, sharing testing protocols, What's working and not working when it comes to correction facilities, nursing homes, those places that can be uh, such a hotbed right now? Uh, we think along the same lines in terms of bars, restaurants, anything that would mean cross-border um, travel, which is something we're trying to discourage. Governor, I want to thank you for your time. Realize uh, putting in a lot of long hours and, and trying to make sure you're protecting your citizens. We do appreciate your time today. Next on Squawk Pond, the man who built Starbucks into the icon we know today, Howard Schultz, says it's our responsibility to support companies and people hardest hit by the coronavirus. It's not 150,000 businesses that are going to go out of business. It's 150,000 families. We're back after this. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Welcome back. Uh, I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin. We've got Becky Quick here. we got Joe Kernan here. States across the country are making plans to reopen for business, even as the U.S. gains thousands of new coronavirus cases each day. What's becoming clear, though, is that things may get back to, to normal at a very different speed, or different speeds, I should say, across the country. Here with us right now to discuss the reopening of the economy, the challenges facing the restaurant industry, and so much more is former Starbucks chairman and CEO, 
Howard Schultz. Howard, great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Andrew. How are you doing? Uh, we, we, we're good. We're, we're, all, we're all just trying to get by. Uh, I know you've been spending an enormous amount of time over the past several weeks talking and working with small businesses in the Seattle area, as well as small businesses across the country. Uh, you've developed a, a plate fund uh, with your family to, to help people uh, in the area. But let's talk a little bit about the challenges of reopening, because I know you have a view about what's taking place right now and uh, whether the loans that are being given out by the government will go far enough. Well, you, you framed it perfectly for me, so I appreciate it. Let, let's try and level set and get common language on the industry at large. Um, small businesses and independent restaurants represent about 48% of American jobs. Uh, one, one out of every five American works for a company with less than 20 employees. Now, there are 500,000 restaurants, independent restaurants in the country, employing about 12 million people. Now, if you look at PPP, which I think had, was good intent, but flawed in terms of the execution, the mass majority of restaurants did not qualify, did not participate, do not have a banking relationship, and did not have any engagement with PPP. Now, PPP really was a two-month band-aid, and I understand the intent to pay the employees, but the real issue for the independent restaurants is not a two-month band-aid. The real issue and the question is they don't have the resources, the money or the training to reopen. And what is needed for the entire industry is is really a vaccine. A, I'm sorry, a bridge to the vaccine. And specifically, the question I think that should be asked right now is it would be incalculable if 30 to 40 percent. And I think that's a conservative number of independent restaurants and small businesses don't make it through. So the, the question is. What are we going to do in this period? And we believe, believe we have a two to three month window right now before these independent restaurants are forced to permanently close. So what's needed is not another version of PPP. Again, good intent, but it's the wrong medicine. What's needed is really a massive opportunity to a bridge to a vaccine, which is a trillion dollar number. It's large, I understand it. But that number is gonna be much, much less than the incalculable number of 150,000 or 200 small businesses, independent restaurants closing, and millions, probably three to four million more Americans who are out of work. Not to mention the social fabric of every community right. which the independent restaurant is so linked to. And so we have a moment right now where we must save these independent restaurants. Now, unfortunately, the independent restaurants do not have a massive lobbying organization like the airline industry, like the agriculture industry. By the way, the restaurant industry is larger than both of them combined. And the government must understand they must be safe. The other issue is a moral one. These are hardworking people who have put their life savings in these businesses. They deserve to have some method to be safe. Don't let them go. And it, it will be the wrong signal. So how, for would, how would this work? You're talking about a trillion dollar program. Is this a loan? Is this an equity uh, stake investment that the government would take in these small businesses? What does this look like? Well, it, to me, I think it's, it sounds simple to me. I know I'm not the, the Fed, I'm not the banks, but to me, it's the government acting as a backstop for the banks to give every small business and every independent restaurant a bridge to the vaccine. And that is the, the money and the resources to make it through. And, 
You know, the, these but independent restaurants, most of them kind of banking relationship that would have allowed them to participate in PPP. So the banks, unfortunately, right. did not have access to these companies. Also, I think you've seen some pretty shameful acts by some large companies to take advantage of the system. But the government, the government are not operators. They think PPP is the answer. It's not. From an operating point of view, and I understand this, especially since Starbucks is making is trying to do the same thing, make it through. But small restaurants don't have the capacity to make it through. They don't have the money. They don't have the resources. These companies operate on very thin margins. They, they operate on a month-to-month basis. We must save them. Howard, in terms of saving them, one of the big questions is the duration of how long this is, this is going to last and even what it looks like on the other side of normal. Uh, the state of Georgia, for example, going back to business next Monday, Colorado, by the way, uh, doing a similar thing. But unclear, of course, what even that sense of normal looks like in a, in a social distancing world. You talked about a bridge to a vaccine. There are some health experts that don't think we're going to see a vaccine for 12 to 18 months. And so sort of what do you think that process looks like and 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 how 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 would you layer these loans uh, in, and put them in place for these companies? Do you want the restaurants to all stay in business at full capacity? Do you furlough certain employees? What, how does that work? Well, well first of all, Andrew, I, I just want to go back. Let's just make sure we frame your question, which is the right question, uh, but link it to the to the other issue. And that is what's the cost to not doing this? And that the cost of not doing this is 150 to 200,000 businesses going permanently closed and three to four million people on unemployment. And these businesses will never be heard from again. And the social fabric of every community is going to be dramatically affected. Now, you're asking a very important question, which PPP doesn't address. And that is these restaurants are probably going to operate at 30 to 50 percent capacity for a couple of quarters as things become normalized. That is why they need a bridge to the vaccine, because they won't be able to operate effectively because there will be very little profits. Now, what you are seeing around the country is the entrepreneurial spirit of these restaurants doing everything they possibly can to stay afloat, to do takeout, to do delivery. And there's also things going on in every community in America where restaurants are opening to feed the people who are hungry, to feed their workers. These are extraordinary people. And when you think about the spirit of the country, it would be immoral to let these companies and these people fail. It's not 150,000 businesses that are going to go out of business. It's 150,000 families and so many others, a rippling effect of this that will be so, it'll be so dramatic. And so we can't just save the airline industry. We can't just save the farmers. We must save these independent restaurants across the country. And yes, it's a trillion dollars, but it will be more than a trillion dollars. That's the point if they fail. Now, there's many mechanisms to do this. I've just suggested one, and that is the federal government acts as a backstop for the banks, and the banks are given a mandate to save every business, every restaurant in the country. That's what we must do. Now, this is an extraordinary time. It requires extraordinary levels of decisiveness. And what I learned in 2008, 2009, as Starbucks was trying to navigate through the cataclysmic financial crisis is when you're leading a company or leading a situation, sometimes you have to make a decisive decision without perfect information in order to save the company, in order to do what's right. This requires right. kind of decision. 
And the government and Mnuchin, How they're trying to do very good things, but they're not operators. PPP is just a Band-Aid. None of these companies can make it through. Howard, you had mentioned uh, that you thought that there were certain people taking these loans uh, that were, and it was shameful that they were doing so. Uh, you saw Shake Shack just yesterday, uh, having taken a $10 million loan, say they were going to return it. Uh, were you referring to them? Who, who, what, what, what were you thinking about in terms of, because there is a, a big moral question right now uh, for companies that may be, may be teetering, may not be teetering, but obviously are eligible for the loans. And, the, and then, of course, the question is, should they take them? Well, I, I don't want to name names because I've got respect for some of those people who I know. But I, you know, I read that story and I just felt, God, what, what are they thinking? And I, I just, listen, uh, the, these are public companies with 100, 200, 300 million dollars on their balance sheet. They, they don't need the loan. The, the independent businesses who are trying to make it month to month is what PPP was designed for. As, as flawed as it is, it was designed for them. And so the big companies... And the, and the industries that have lobbying organizations that are able to affect change are in the front of the line. The independent restaurants and small businesses of America, when I hear the politicians talk about the fact that small business is the engine of the economy, okay, they keep saying that, but you're going to let it fail. <laughs> you know all too well the line too big to fail. These businesses are too small to fail, and they are so engaged in the fabric of our community and the social construct of the country. We can't let these independent restaurants fail. Hey, Howard, two, two last questions. One is on the other side of this, and, and, and we have to hope that there is another side of this. Um, how do you think this changes the business landscape, the relationship between labor and, and employers? And I just wonder whether the, whether the debate and, and how uh, that relationship changes over time. Well, I think you're asking a really another important question, and that is, you know, the, the fragile balance between a company's pursuit of profit and doing everything you can to elevate the humanity of the company, and in this case, the spirit and the heroic actions of people and their ability to get compensated. And I think uh, in this new era post-COVID, I think those companies that do the right thing and honor the, the individual employee and recognize that uh, those employees have to be valued and compensated in unique ways uh, in which the culture, the values, and the guiding principles of a company are as important as profit. Those are the companies that are going to win. I'm, I'm very proud of Starbucks paying all of our employees uh, through the end of May. Uh, and we're probably one of the few companies that have been paying rent. You know, these things matter because you are imprinting a set of of actions and decisions that demonstrate the appreciation, not of value, but of values. And I think your question speaks to the importance of values and humanity and the fact that every business is gonna understand it's not business as usual, and you're gonna to have to do everything you can to elevate the humanity of the company and do it in real actions, not just rewarding shareholders, but balancing that with doing everything you can to elevate the, the consciousness the psychology and the economic value of what employees bring to your company during this period and post-COVID. Uh, before we let you go, just tell us what's going on in Seattle. I know uh, your wife, Sherry, and you uh, have put together this plate fund uh, for, for, for well, out-of-work employees. You know, thank you, Andrew. What we recognized in the last two, three months is that 100,000 restaurant workers, uh, because 3,000 restaurants have been closed in Seattle, uh, were out of work 
think many of them have still not gotten any government assistance. And we created a, uh, a relief fund to give them $500 of cash. We've distributed $7,500 cash payments. Uh, these, these are not loans. This is free money uh, to people who need it most. And we, in, in the research, we've now seen that the majority of people who got $500 were the most needy. The issue there is, and this, this speaks to what could happen if these restaurants don't permanently close, is that these people were already facing food insecurity, housing instability. And again, uh, we, we can't just let these people fall by the west, wayside. We have to help them. And the, let, let's, before, I, before I leave you, we have a two to three month period, a window of opportunity to save these independent restaurants. If we don't do it, they will permanently close in two to three months. And I'm pleading with the government, I'm pleading with the banks to understand the moral obligation to save this industry and to save the independent restaurants at a moment of crisis. Howard Schultz, thank you so much for calling into the show this morning. We appreciate it. Uh, it's always good to see you and we wish you lots of luck. Thanks so thank much. Thank you, Andrew. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, tell a friend to listen, and tweet us at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. 